0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: What's happening today in American society is the label of Christian is being applied to forces that are really deeply unChristian and are very much in violation of our Catholic social teaching. And you don't have a right to label it Christian unless it really meets a very high standard that is reflective of the Gospels.
2: Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo de Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media in New York, and also an associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of some of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week on Preach, we are joined by Walter Modris. Walter is a Jesuit priest. He describes his present state of life as retired but still holds down five jobs, including one as the host of a preaching podcast, together with his colleague, Miss B.J. Brown. Like Preach, you can listen to his weekly homilies on his podcast, Believe, Teach, Practice, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Walter, welcome to Preach. Thank you very much, and thank you for your invitation to be here. Wonderful. It's so good to have you as the host of another podcast about preaching. Uh, Why don't you tell me a little bit more about Believe Teach Practice? When did it start? What's the idea behind it? Well, it started about a hundred weeks ago. It was really started uh, with the initiative of
1: BJ Brown, a colleague of mine. Uh, We were together at uh, Old St. Joseph's Church in Philadelphia, and I think the church very much profits from hearing preaching from from a woman. And uh, she can speak about experiences like being a mother, raising children, that obviously I cannot speak about. So she provides, I think, a very uh, deep insight into the
2: scriptures. I think we complement one another very well. I know you've written this homily for the podcast audience. Do you know much about the audience, who the audience is? That's one of the frustrations I feel about this particular form of
1: ministry. We have a lot of anecdotal Uh, impressions. uh, But we really don't have a good, clear idea. It's meant to be pretty broad and undefined in terms of uh, the particular characteristics of the audience, of the congregation. And
2: yet, there's something about Scripture that speaks to all of us. So, talking about Scripture, you're preaching on the Feast of the Transfiguration of Our Lord, and you're really focused on the Gospel reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Why don't you set the scene for us? What happens in that gospel passage?
1: So the the transfiguration scene appears in each of the three synoptic gospels. They're somewhat similar. This happens to be taken from the gospel of St. Matthew. You know, so Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him up to the mountain. And as the... uh, evangelists reported. He is transfigured before them and it's this vision of Jesus becoming this source of very bright light and uh, there is a cloud from heaven and the voice from heaven, the voice of His Father talking about uh, Jesus as His Son and listen to Him. Uh, So it's kind of an echo of the baptism scene of Jesus. But the the important thing uh, for the evangelists, I think, is that it's, it's an echo of Jesus on the journey. And Jesus is asking these disciples to follow him um, as he makes his way towards the passion
2: and death and crucifixion scene, and finally the resurrection. So having been reminded of this depiction of the transfiguration in the scriptures, I want to hear how you translate that for a modern-day audience. So we will now hear Walter Modris preaching on the Feast of the Transfiguration, Year A.
1: It's just a coincidence, to be sure. But sometimes a coincidence can shed an unexpected light on experience. The Feast of the Transfiguration is celebrated every year on August the 6th. That date also marks the anniversary of the first use of the atomic bomb in warfare, the bombing of the Japanese city of Hiroshima in 1945 that inflicted tens of thousands of civilian casualties and led to the end of World War II. Those two events, the transfiguration in the gospel and the bombing of Hiroshima, for some reason have always been linked in my imagination. I suspect it's More than just the coincidence of falling on the same day of the year, such opposite events. What possibly could they have in common? In his 30-day spiritual retreat program called The Spiritual Exercises, St. Ignatius Loyola proposes a meditation. He entitled it The Two Standards Meditation. It's filled with bizarre Baroque imagery so reflective of Ignatius' 16th century culture. He imagines Christ standing on a great field near Jerusalem, and Lucifer on another field in the region of Babylon. Though I get the contrast, I have no idea how to picture the region of Babylon, nor of Jerusalem for that matter. It gets worse. Lucifer issues a summons to innumerable demons. He scatters them throughout the world to cast out nets and chains to imprison helpless victims. Well, you see what I mean. It sounds like the screenplay for a horror movie. But the challenge is not to duplicate Ignatius' imaginative vision. No doubt he's on to something deeper than that. I wonder if my fascination with the dual anniversaries of August 6 is a modern version of Ignatius' two-standards meditation. Now, the bomb needed to be tested before it could be used in war. As we know, it worked perfectly. The blast early that morning in the desert in New Mexico was like nothing that had ever been witnessed before. The light was like the sun. The heat melted the sand into glass. The explosion knocked over everything in its path. Robert Oppenheimer is credited with producing the bomb as the head of a team of brilliant scientists. He was a brilliant physicist himself, but troubled in spirit. A deeply sensitive man, even today the focus of some popular attention, a film recounting his life, has just been released. As the story goes, while witnessing the explosion, Oppenheimer quoted a verse from a Hindu poem. It read, If the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. An explosion so awesome, it evoked an image of otherworldly power, dare we say, like that of God. Years later, Oppenheimer would explain that another verse had also entered his head at that time. Another quotation from Hindu literature. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. One month after the successful test, the awesome power was unleashed a few hundred feet over a defenseless city, and thousands of human beings were instantly incinerated. People mark the day as the beginning of a new world, they say, the nuclear age, they call it. Nuclear weapons may someday destroy the world, at least as we know it. Indeed, the powerful blast with light that no one could observe unprotected without going instantly blind was now in our possession. Well, so much for the bomb. What about the transfiguration? One can sense how the literary talents of the evangelists were challenged, trying adequately to describe the transfiguration event. His face shone like the sun, they say, and his clothes became white as light. A bright cloud, we are told, cast a shadow over the witnesses. Hardly a nuclear blast, to be sure, but curious how the writers appeal to the same basic imagery, unwittingly drawing a comparison. Both scenes conjure up otherworldly perspectives. Some spectacular phenomenon has intruded into human experience. But what does it mean? Today reminds us that the Transfiguration is a vision that points to Christ's resurrection and his victory over death. Today also reminds us of the detonation of a weapon of mass destruction, an invention that may bring about the end of human civilization. We become like Christ, as St. Paul reminded us. Or we become like death, the destroyer of worlds, as Oppenheimer warned. Well, four years ago, Pope Francis visited Nagasaki, the second city that suffered a nuclear attack a few days after Hiroshima. The time was in November, so the Pope had no reason to mention the Feast of Transfiguration. But he implicitly appealed to the Ignatian meditation, the two standards. He spoke of the perverse dichotomy, he called it, that marks our world. Peace and international stability, he said, are incompatible with the fear of mutual destruction or the threat of total annihilation. The two poles of the dichotomy couldn't be more opposite. Peace and international stability on the one hand, and mutual destruction and total annihilation on the other. Those are the opposites. The modern correlates of the plains of Jerusalem and Babylon? Despite the stark contrast, it's surprising how much the perverse dichotomy of Pope Francis pervades our experience. In one form or another, it plagues most dimensions of our lives. That's why it's such a valuable tool for discernment. We can learn a lot by comparing the opposites, because paradoxically, We frequently confuse the two poles of the dichotomy. The confusion arises when we resort to force, claiming that we are really striving for peace, whether in international affairs or as a way of policing our cities or coping with our own personal issues in life. The voice from heaven to follow Christ is drowned out by the violently disrupting sound of an explosion detonated or a gun going off. The unheeded cries of the poor protesting injustice are shouted down by a mob fearing their loss of privilege. To confiscate weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist, we invaded Iraq, against the better judgment of many. At the same time, our country nurtures our own nuclear arsenal, the warheads and delivery vehicles As if such weapons can secure long-term peace for mankind, we confuse weapons of mass destruction with authentic instruments of peace. Many, claiming to be Christians, rely more on the light from a nuclear blast than on their faith in the transfigured Christ. The greatest sin arises, however, when we actually substitute one pole for the other. We falsely claim that the blinding light and the destructive blast are appearances of a salvific force because we naively assume we can contain the evil it inflicts. And then we willfully take the side of the weapon with its display of otherworldly power. It's not just nuclear weapons, however. We arm our citizenry, claiming that guns keep us safe more than the values we share and the mutual respect in which we hold one another. In our cities, unarmed civilians are beaten and sometimes killed by police in a wrong-handed effort to protect public safety. We impose capital punishment to bring closure and to console tragically injured parties, sometimes learning later that the executed victim was actually innocent of the crime. We separate and turn away families seeking asylum from violent gangs and exploitive governments to control our border and protect our homeland from harm. But this resort to force sometimes conceals the actual violence at its core. It's the unrelenting quest for power over others through manipulating our political institutions or accumulating vast economic resources in the hands of a few. We weaponize our faith, claiming that Christian faith is our national possession. Then our political and social aspirations, distorted as they are by self-interest and prejudice, are falsely conflated with the promised kingdom of God on earth. All these are instances of one side of the dichotomy employed at the expense of the other. Violence is favored over peace. Exploitation instead of justice. Consumption preferred over conservation. Indeed, a perverse dichotomy. Looked at this way, bringing together the vision of transfiguration and the anniversary of Hiroshima makes today a challenging day indeed. It puts the stark choice before us between life and death, love and hate, freedom and slavery. May God's grace inspire
2: us to choose rightly. That was Walter Modris for Preach. After the break, We'll hear what drew him to draw connections between the glorious Feast of the Transfiguration and the unspeakable tragedy of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. Welcome back to Preach. Thank you. I can't say I've ever heard a more surprising homily for the Feast of the Transfiguration. <laughs> Not quite sure how we got to uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration and the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. Just wow. I mean, how did you come to that connection? Well, I've always found it very difficult to preach on the Feast of the Transfiguration.
1: As I mentioned before, the passage is so loaded with scriptural references, Old Testament especially, and unless you really delve deeply into New Testament Christology, it's, it's difficult to explain the meaning of the event. But I have always had this um, distraction, if you will, about August 6th. That happened just after I was born. I was born at the end of March in 1945. So all of these events took place uh, just after my birth. And I I always was drawn to this um, problem of nuclear weapons and the story of uh, what happened in the, the use of these weapons. And so when you called and asked me to preach on the Transfiguration, I thought to myself, well, now, why don't I use this opportunity to try and put these two things together that have kind of always been
2: somehow associated in my mind? I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, how you come to prepare for a homily and, you know, what, what you bring into the homily that we eventually hear on a Sunday, how you come to that?
1: Well, my personal, I'm usually panicked. I usually like to walk around. Uh, not sit in a room and not sit at a desk and, or before a blank computer screen or a blank piece of paper. Years ago, I would do it with a cigar, but I can't smoke a cigar anymore, according to the doctors, and, and go out for a walk and just look around and daydream during the day, a couple days before. And what I'm looking for is what I call the handle. So what was that handle for this particular homily? Well, obviously, it's the uh, contrast between here's Hiroshima and here's the gospel story of the Transfiguration and Christ is calling us into life and this terrible weapon is calling us to death." And the imagery, I thought, that brings them together is they're both talking about light and they're talking about this cloud and and the, the awesome impact of these two scenes, but for such opposite purposes. Um, and, and then the, the bridge was the
2: Ignatian idea of the two standards. So just for the benefit of our listeners who may not have a background in Ignatian spirituality, let's talk about the spiritual exercises. So the spiritual exercises are designed by St. Ignatius Loyola, and it's really a way of explaining his experience of the spiritual life and how he comes to make decisions that are informed by what God wants for him in his life and to remove obstacles that are stopping him in his own life. And it's divided into four notional weeks. And this comes in the second week, the meditation on the two standards. So why don't you take it from there? What is this meditation on the two standards?
1: Well, this whole second phase or second week of the exercises is really geared towards making a decision. How are you going to follow Christ? And Ignatius had a very nuanced understanding of how God's will impacts us and how God calls us, what the pattern of grace is in our life. And he has a number of meditations that help us to discern, that's the operative word in the exercises, to discern the pattern of graces, where good is and where evil is and how we're being attracted and manipulated by those two forces. So. The the two standards is sort of the, the beginning exercise in that process, and Ignatius wants to put before us a stark contrast between the action of the evil one and the action of God's spirit in us. What I was trying to do in this homily was point out that the Christian has to look out society and see these different forces and begin to understand how they impact him or her and uh, how confused we can be. That there's a confusion between a lack of, of ability to identify what are the roots of these influences that we are exposed to and how do we evaluate them, discern them
2: by some Christian standard. And often these are very subtle forces, right? Yes. Kind of what you're trying to point out to us, how sometimes things that appear to bring life actually bring death. Things that appear to bring death actually bring life. Do you want to say something maybe about that, how you employed that in this homily?
1: I believe that a homilist has to be willing to risk showing some emotion. And I usually do try to do that. And it is always risky because that, kind of passion can be misdirected by the homilist, overreacting, overdramatic. It, could, it can draw attention to oneself in, instead of to the truth that is hopefully being proclaimed. Um, it can also be very biased because it's linked with emotion, which of course can be very subjective. But um, I tried to, to speak about these forces in our society, referring to them. And that's skirting a little bit. You know, you're on thin ice. You you can go over the line and people can walk away saying that you know, you're you're far too political. I I think nevertheless we have to risk that because what's happening today in American society is the label of Christian is being applied to forces that are really deeply, in my opinion, deeply unchristian and certainly within the Catholic community, are very much in violation of our Catholic social teaching. And you don't have a right to label it Christian unless it really meets a very high standard that is reflective
2: of the Gospels. So, how do I delineate between what is truly evil uh, and what is simply my own political stance or my own preference, one way or or the other?
1: Well, of course, that's, that's the whole ball of wax here. That's that's what the challenge is. One thing I think it is an advantage if you have a relationship built up with the congregation that you're preaching to, a relationship of trust with that audience. Like I have found when I've been a guest preacher in a parish, for example, and no one in the congregation really knows me, I pr- have to preach very differently from the occasions when I'm preaching to a congregation that I've been working with for a long period of time, Um, because I think if
2: you don't have people's trust, you can't presume that. I often say to the people that I offer spiritual direction to, it's really easy (laughs) when you're hearing their experience to, to offer advice, to offer a kind word, to help them through a problem, because you can look at it from a removed point of view. It's quite something else trying to actually live it. And so maybe admitting that to your congregation in your homily is uh, half the battle won.
1: And, and that's what I mean about p- uh, building up trust with the congregation. Like one time uh, I was walking around the church uh, during mass. I was not the presider, of course. And uh, around communion time, a uh, man came up to me and said, Father, I'm not going to go to communion because I don't feel that I'm worthy. And I said to him, look, we only have one line in this church, and it's the line for
2: sinners, and the priest leads it. And I suggest that you get on the line with everybody else. I wonder if you might say something about when somebody disagrees with what we have to say or they feel incredibly challenged by it and they come to challenge us um you know how are you able to respond to them in a way that is loving and affirming without affirming necessarily a position you might think is evil in their thinking well uh, you know i i have a line i i give people that if you want to hear my politics
1: uh you have to take me out to dinner at a really good restaurant and pick up the tab. <laughs> and I'll be glad to to speak about my politics. Here in the church, I'm not talking about my politics. I'm talking about what seems to me to be the Christian faith. And again, I struggle to live this just as you do. Now, um, we, we finally have to rely upon our prudential judgments to make practical decisions in the world and I think it's great that we can have discussions about that. What I'm afraid of and what is really difficult to handle and I'm sure you've felt this too, is when somebody is really mean-spirited and comes at you. That, that's, that's a little bit different. Uh, I have many friends that disagree with me, you know, would take exception to some of those statements uh, that I made in this homily. And for example, you know, I don't have the answer to the whole immigration crisis that is facing the country, and he, you know, I, I I don't know an awful lot. I'm not an expert in economic theory and what the Federal Reserve should be, and uh, so forth. Uh, that's not that's not where I'm really passionate. But it's this concern for the the real deep social justice issues that. I I think a Christian cannot escape because of the gospel. You know, there's something very good about Christians. And it's, you take the kinds of people that say are in our podcast audience, they are people that wanna hear the the gospel preached. That's, That's why they're giving up 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is on a Saturday morning to listen to this thing. If you appeal to that core, Uh, where grace is at work in their lives and not in a triumphalistic way from outside or being judgmental, but in in terms of your interest in in acknowledging that uh, the action of the spirit within them. um, I think uh, most people that are coming to church will respond to that. Somebody is so mean-spirited that they are going to be terribly hostile. Well, that's the risk you take as
2: being a, a, a preacher. You still have to preach the word, you know, in season and out of season. So how do we preach about these political issues and then still maintain a sense of Christian hope? Because these are challenging things to talk about, but you want to leave people with hope. Absolutely. How do you leave them with hope? Well, during this
1: summer, we're spending a, a number of weeks on the 13th chapter of Matthew's gospel, which is the parables chapter. The message is that there is hope because the kingdom is coming. And you know, the sower went out to sow and believe it or not, despite all of the obstacles, the seed took root and grew and the harvest was, what is it, 30, 60, 100 fold. These gospel readings are sort of like a a TV series. And you should tune in every week to follow the plot line. And it's not just one week that stands alone. It has to be seen in the
2: context of the entire series. Well, I think those three things are great things to leave us with, especially to leave preachers with, right? That in the first place, we should trust in God, uh, that thereafter we should be prepared, right? We should do our due diligence and make sure that we prepare well. And finally, that we pay attention to where the story is going, right? That this is part of a a larger body of texts, um, a body of work, that we are moving into the Eucharist. So I think you've left us with some wonderful advice for our preachers. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ricardo. Pleasure to be with you. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily for this week in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative, a project of Lily Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Kevin Christopher Robles engineered this episode, and Frank Tewson designed the theme score and composed original music for the podcast. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. We recorded in the William J. Loshit Studio in New York City. And before you go, if you've heard a great homily recently or know a great preacher you'd like to recommend for this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Just see the link in our show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. And did you know that American Media can deliver a new scripture reflection to your inbox every day? If you're a digital subscriber, they're probably there waiting for you. If not, become a digital subscriber today for just $5.99 a month. It's the best way to support our work here on Preach. Just visit the link in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Ricardo De Silva. Until next time, keep preaching the good news.